0: this is recording. RTI
1: International Center Forensic Science presents Just
0: Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. Just Science interviews John Paul Jones and Mark Stolaro of NIST about the Organization of Scientific Area Committees for Forensic Science. The 2009 National Academy of Sciences' report on forensic science cited a lack of national leadership and scientifically sound standards. Its authors specifically look to NIST to bridge these gaps in the forensic science arena. Listen along as our guests from NIST discuss developing standards and the creation of the Organization of Scientific Area Committees for Forensic Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan.
1: And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. We're here at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Meeting, ASCLAD, in May of 2018. And my guests today are two folks who are central to some very important reform and, and improvement efforts in the forensic science community around the Organization of Scientific Area Committees for Forensic Science at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. We have uh, Mr. John Paul Jones, who uh, not only has an MBA from Carnegie Mellon, but his other claim to fame is that he worked for me when I was at NIJ, (laughs) and he survived the experience, and is actually the Associate Director of OSAC Affairs within the Forensic Science Program at NIST. OSAC is composed of 34 operating units populated by over 560 members and 250 affiliates. That's a lot to keep straight in the OSAC process, and we're gonna talk about that uh, in particular today. Mark Stollerall is the director of OSAC Affairs at NIST, comes with an MBA from Eastern Michigan University, having worked as a coordinator for the Forensic Biology and Research Program Administrator for the Illinois State Police Bureau of Forensic Science, as executive director at Orchid Cellmark, and has now been uh, very influential in terms of moving NIST into a position where it can be very, very influential in the forensic science community, in particular through the OSAC process. Welcome, JP, and welcome, Mark. Thank you for having us. One of the things that we really want to try to make sure we do is to lay the land here in terms of the vision for OSAC on what it's trying to accomplish.
2: Sure, thank you John. The um, Organization of Scientific Area Committees for Forensic Science is something that actually developed in 2014 as a consequence of a memorandum of understanding between NIST and the Department of Justice. And in response to the NAS report, the development of OSAC is actually traceable to the NAS report where in that report it cited a lack of national leadership in scientifically sound standards. And NIST was mentioned more than 50 times in the 250-page report, encouraging participation by NIST to help improve national leadership in forensic science.
1: They weren't subtle about what (laughs) they wanted to see.
2: Correct, correct. (laughs) And uh, that was not lost on our director at NIST. And so we began to have discussions early on. And one of the outcomes of those discussions was the evolution of the National Commission on Forensic Science, which had a four-year life from 2014 to the end of 2017. And the second was OSAC. So OSAC evolved for the purpose, as it's mentioned in the mission statement of the charter and bylaws for OSAC, and that is to facilitate the development of scientifically sound standards and the implementation of those standards in order to improve the practice of forensic science. So the mission is very clear. And one of the things that we do, we are not actually developing the standards ourselves. We facilitate the development of the standards through standard development organizations. And there are several SDOs in the forensic science arena. ASTM is one of them, and more recently, the American Academy of Forensic Sciences is another. There are a total of about a dozen SDOs, standard developing organizations, that have an interest in participating in creating and owning these forensic science standards. And OSAC is not an owner. We are essentially a convener and a facilitator to help that process along. The experts that we have in these 34 units that you mentioned, their committees and subcommittees, is to try to bring together a variety of stakeholder groups who are all representing all of the criminal justice components that give us an opportunity to have inputs from academic researchers, from the criminal justice community itself, including prosecutors and judges and defense attorneys. And roughly half of all of the 560 members that we have are actual forensic science practitioners or managers of forensic science laboratories. So in having a proper balance, we see the opportunity not only to bring together the expertise of the people who know forensic science best from a casework and a practice point of view, but also all of the people who are impacted as users and who can be valuable critics in analyzing the value of the scientific foundation for these standards. The academic researchers understand good science practice and experimental design. The statisticians, who are going to be valuable in helping us quantify the certainty or uncertainty of uh, techniques that we're analyzing are critical to the process. We have metrologists or measurement scientists from NIST who participate. So we're trying to expand the entire universe of people who can contribute to improving the quality of forensic science compared to the way it was before 2009 when the NIS report was issued.
1: So there are really two components of a solid standards program, or a successful st- standards program. One is sound science, right? And the other is, especially these days, is a consensus process where there's a chance for the folks who might have a different view about how to approach a measurement have a chance to be heard and for that to be taken into account as you build the standard. Exactly. So JP, tell us about the structure of the OSAC as it's sitting now, how you all manage the OSAC through what is obviously an extraordinarily complex array of of committees and needs. Right, yeah.
3: So right now, the uh, OSAC is set up with a governing board of our Forensic Science Standards Board. And then there are, I would say, three and a half resource committees. Uh, We have a legal group made up of about 10, 11 people, a quality group made up of about 15 folks, and a human factors group made up of uh, human factors experts, uh, psychologists, and things like that. Those resource committees provide counsel throughout OSAC, but the chairs of those units also sit on our governing board. In the half I was talking about, we have a statistics task group that sort of serves like a resource committee. And it's a fascinating group. What we've done is we've taken the about 26 statistician-esque, some full-time statisticians, some just have statistics educations, and allow them to convene in one group and where they can debate. Issues. And believe it or not, all the statisticians don't always agree on everything. Oh, so yes,
1: statisticians <laughs> are the worst. Put 26 statisticians in a room, you'll have 26 people who think the other 25 don't know how to interpret data.
3: Yeah, so. and because I work with those 26 people, they should know. That was John Morgan saying that. That was John, not JP. John Morgan saying
1: <laughs> that. I, and, yeah. It's um, very important work. Statistics yeah. is, yeah. I, I actually think statistics should be a high school course. I think it's more important than calculus and algebra yeah. in the modern world to be able to do statistics well. And so it's very, very important to forensic science too. Yeah,
3: of and the, what's one of the unique things about OSAC is that we have these groups of experts that are providing counsel to the uh, subcommittees and our scientific area committee. So when we first stood up OSAC, we had basically 24 disciplines, now 25 forensic science disciplines. And we knew we needed to kind of section them up into uh, different groups so that we could have cross-pollination occur within at least these little cohorts, these groups. And so we have uh, chemistry and biology, physics, digital, and uh, the crime scene group. And so underneath those scientific area committees, those more macro groups, we have the individual subcommittee disciplines that all have about uh, 20 folks in each of the subcommittees. And the interesting thing is we've seen some of the accrediting bodies actually adopt our definition for the description of that discipline into their program. So, OSAC is you know, we're becoming more seen in, in more activities. I mean, with the, the creation of the AAFS Standards Group, the Academy Standards Board, from taking draft documents from us and then baking them into SDOs, to the accrediting bodies recognizing us, to, uh, I mean, there's lots of different things that are going on. And one of the key things that I think we wanted to drive home is, right now, we've done something great already where we've professionalized the standards development process in the forensic science industry. So before OSAC, we had the SWIGs doing a lot of really great work trying Mm -hmm. to put together documents, but they're all built a little bit differently. Well, we're now on par with other industries using recognized accredited SDOs in the development of standards. And so that's something that we're real proud of, that OSAC helps bring together some experts to build draft documents introducing them into accredited SDOs for a very formal standards development process.
1: Well, yeah, historically, uh, especially the FBI lab was very instrumental in the development of the SWIGs, including the development of the organization that we're in now. The the ASCLAD was basically the brainchild of uh, the FBI laboratory. And it was extraordinarily important for the FBI to lead in that direction back as early as 1970. But, you know, it has been time for a while now to kind of... uh, get to this next level and to be like other industries in terms of how standards are developed. It's crucial to forensic science as much as to any other industry. So where is the status right now of the development of documents and standards and test methods and everything that goes with it within the OSAC process?
2: We currently have an OSAC registry of standards. This is the published, publicly available registry of standards that have been given the gold star for uh, having demonstrated scientifically valid. You all have actual real gold stars? Actually, there is a little logo for the registry, and the registry is gold. So, we so actually, there
1: are gold stars. Yes. yes. Oh, OK. So we use Excellent. gold stars.
2: And, and currently, we have uh, eight standards that have developed and are populating the registry. And the Registry of Standards, by the way, is available on our website. Um, There is an OSAC website at nist.gov. And they're designed to award uh, the development of those standards. Those are standards that are owned or uh, copyrighted by their respective SDOs. And these are the first eight. And it may sound, after three years of development, having eight standards is not a lot of progress. But on the other hand, the whole development process is something which has taken a long time to get it right. And as we continue to evolve, someone may say, well, where are you with the development of standards? In fact, you asked that question. So I can tell you that having more than 200 standards in the pipeline, which are coming as a tsunami for the rest of the OSAC organization, we've been working a long time in evaluating not only standards that begin within OSAC and are then funneled to the SDOs to develop and bring back to us for consideration, we also have an entire universe of 700 standards that have already been identified that we are in the process of evaluating. And the first hundred or so of those that were listed by the individual discipline subcommittees as the most important ones have finally been evaluated and have reached the stage where they're now going to be under consideration for inclusion.
1: On so are those existing standards that you can borrow from, say, an ASTM and things like that?
2: Yes, both. So we have existing standards like the ones from ASTM E30. Um, there are some from the American Dental Association. There are some from uh, other organizations, including ABS, which is the new standard-developing organization of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, and new standards that evolved de novo from OSAC. And the individual committees pass the subcommittees, pass those along to the standard area committees, the SACs. And the SACs then approve them, give them to the FSSB for consideration. But they get funneled out of OSAC to standard developing organizations for them to develop consensus bodies. And the consensus bodies then vote, make them standards, and the standards are then brought back to us for consideration to be elevated to the registry. I might say that for all of them that have been reviewed, and we have eight standards that are currently on the registry, mm-hmm. there are five times that number that have been considered and rejected because they lack sufficient quality for us to put them on the registry. So we're very stringent. It doesn't come easily for us to take a standard and recognize that it has reached sufficient technical merit that it is scientifically sound, as well as a pedigree of consensus-based development. Those two elements have to be present in order for us to even consider it for the registry.
1: So I am so glad that NIST is part of this process uh, because of where NIST sits with respect to standards. Uh, you know, I grew up within a couple of miles of the old National Bureau of Standards and uh, appreciated the aspect of standards. And, and even when I was doing scientific work, uh, one of the things that I, I remember, there's a fellow by the name of Albert Filipelli who worked at NIST for, for decades and Albert's work was to do standards in in vacuum science and he based those standards on what is basically a floating rotating magnetic ball in a vacuum and the way in which that ball slowed down was an indication of the vacuum inside of a chamber and from that you can then calibrate other kinds of methods for measuring the vacuum and Albert knew every type of error to the nth degree that you could have with that little floating ball. And because he understood that, it was possible to calibrate vacuums throughout the world in a way that nobody else, you couldn't have done otherwise until Albert did his decades of work understanding the physics there. And so the the standards development process, as NIST understands it, I think is exactly what forensic science needs.
2: I couldn't agree with you more. And this is the opportunity for me to say that standards is in our middle name at NIST. Right. <laughs> so not only do we pride ourselves in, in helping to convene and facilitate standards development at NIST, we also have people who are very well skilled in measurement science and in calibration. And one of the criticisms of forensic science is that there is, um unevenness from one forensic science discipline to another in the degree to which there is sound scientific underpinning for the practices, the methods that are being used in forensic science. And I don't think anybody disputes the fact that there are some, in some cases, longstanding disciplines which make their way into court, and people are scratching their head asking the question, how is it even possible that these experts are permitted to testify when the scientific underpinning is in question? And in contrast, there are so many strong scientifically meritorious disciplines within forensic science like DNA testing and drug testing and medical pathology, forensic pathology, and dental identification of decedents Mm -hmm. based on dental records. Um, There are so many things for which there is an enormous underpinning of published peer reviewed scientific work. NIST has a core competence in helping to identify what constitutes. validated science and whether the published peer-reviewed work has sound experimental design which underpins uh, the data that we base all of our expert testimony and reports on so I, th- I think you're right, and I won't disagree with you, and I know that my keepers at NIST will be happy to hear that I'm <laughs> extolling the virtues of our, of our core competencies, but it was not an accident that NAS said, you know what, something, we're, we're lacking national leadership, and there's a building down the road in Gaithersburg that is filled with people who can help contribute to improving the strength of standards within forensic
3: science. Yeah. And to build Go off ahead. of
2: that, um, NIST
3: does have a, a very significant core competence, as you guys have described, but one thing they also recognize is the need for the industry to be leading and participating heavily in the development of these documents. Building a standard in isolation doesn't do any, anything. And one of the first things that we did when we launched OSAC in 2014 was the um, partnering with the six largest professional forensic science uh, associations in the United States and giving them a, a seat on the OSAC board. And then we added some researchers and a few others. And for our governing board, because we knew down the road that buy-in and implementation of the documents that eventually come out and be be listed on the OSAC registry, you need these associations and the people that um, are working in the trenches every day to appreciate these documents and, and adopt them. And that's one of the things we're here talking to the Crime Lab directors about tomorrow is gosh, now that we have these standards on the registry, and there's going to be a lot more, because I mean, right now we have 70 documents that are at SDOs. So out of the 200 that are in development, 70 of them are actually at SDOs being baked in their consensus process, which means that a lot more should be out soon. Mm-hmm. Implementation is going to be key for us to fulfill the other part of our mission there, of developing these good documents, but also having them implemented. If no one implements the documents, did we make a difference? Right.
1: Sure. So. so one of the things you've been doing here is, is actually doing a little bit of calibration of your work, right? You actually have been uh, using some of the sessions to poll ASCLAD members about the likelihood of them adopting some of these standards or how they view the OSAC process in general. Is that right?
3: Yeah. We uh, constructed ahead of time with the conference organizers. We told them, well, we have this idea. We'd really love to get the, uh, take the pulse of your organization, the Crime Lab Directors, on what their thoughts are on our implementation plan. And we um, released the implementation plan uh, on the OSAC website, which is hosted on this website. And we're trying to get feedback through that mechanism and here, asking which one of these pathways or which of these pathways that we're considering will be best for you. And we're going to be getting feedback from that that's actually due uh, from the members in in less than an hour that we're going to incorporate into our presentation that we give tomorrow to let them know what they thought as sort of a congregation, what their response was on our pathways. And one of the pathways that we asked about, I can tell you here, we got you know, a small data sample when we initially launched it. And one of our questions was, what is the likelihood of OSAC registry standards being adopted by your laboratory through self-adoption sometime in the future? So essentially what that means is, what's the likelihood of you just doing it,
1: mm-hmm. putting
3: it in your protocols, thus you're accredited. I mean, you're audited against it. And we got a favorable response on that. Uh, I mean, it was a limited data set of 20-some folks, but 13 said likely, seven said highly likely, and um, a few other dissenters there. So I know we'll have a lot more responses than that, but it's showing that you know at least some of our pathways that we have
1: you know, do have merit. So yeah, that is one of your challenges here. One of NIST's strengths is you aren't the dictator of forensic science, right? right. You are not a regulatory body. This implementation issue is a very significant one for forensic science.
2: It is, we have to be able to recognize the voices that we hear from our stakeholders and to be able to hear from them the needs that they have in order to implement these standards. And part of that requires us to be good listeners. And to be responsive. And as you pointed out, NIST is a non-regulatory agency. We're pretty good at convening and we're pretty good at collaboration and partnering. And the key to this is not to provide national dictatorship, it's to provide national leadership. And as we've been hearing at the ASCLAD session for two days, part of leadership is learning how to listen. So we're successful if the implementation of good standards is successful. And in order to do that, there has to be a value proposition. And the value proposition is addressing the criticism of the NIS report. How do you partner with all of the stakeholder communities so that when you develop good standards, you have buy-in and you have support? Because in the end, adoption is going to be voluntary the pathways that we have put together in this implementation plan. We have um, 10 polling questions that we'll be addressing tomorrow at the presentation at ASCLAD. We'd like to make sure that we are covering adequately every possible pathway and implementing standards in a way which is the most strategically impactful and duly accepted by the directors of crime laboratories and by the criminal justice system.
1: Now long term the hope is that the the forensic science community will evolve some governance mechanisms that allow implementation to happen more organically so uh, certainly there's more state forensic science commissions being born. Massachusetts just passed one. Michigan is considering it. Uh, Hopefully certification processes will start to incorporate the standards in in place that you know it's kind of like if you're going to be certified to be a latent print examiner you're going to be certified to do particular kinds of ways of doing the process right that are standards-based but in the meantime yeah it is really very much about the crime laboratories jump-starting that by adopting these. Right, well, and you've already covered
2: now five of the 10
1: pathways. Did I? Well, tell me about nice the job. 10 pathways and see. If I didn't know I was that efficient, I only, <laughs> I only spoke for a minute.
2: That's very good, and it's instinctive. I think you, you know exactly where we need to go in order to get effective implementation. So part of this process is a combination of carrots and sticks. And I think that even though we don't have federal regulatory authority, the NIST is not even a regulatory agency. It doesn't mean that there isn't regional regulatory authority, which is available at the state level. So to address all of these, I'd like to refer to the initial example that JP just gave on self-adoption. We actually have two laboratory systems, state systems in Kentucky and Georgia, who voluntarily said we are going to incorporate in our standard operating procedures, our SOPs, every standard, which is populated on the OSAC registry. So that's two out of 400 400 laboratories in the United States. And we recognize that self-adoption is the quickest and easiest way to do it. But in order to do that, we want to encourage and create enough of a value proposition that it will accelerate the process at which laboratories individually identify the need to add their OSAC registry to their SOPs. The second is that we are going to help provide OSAC members for an external engagement and providing training to the laboratory so that that implementation, the development of SOPs, and incorporating it with the assistance of their quality manager in each laboratory, we can actually provide external training to them that will speed the process and to relieve them of the responsibility of having to provide all the resources to do this themselves. So the third is forensic science professional organizations themselves. And it's, sure. so the American Academy of Forensic Sciences is, is one of them. AFTI, the Association of Firearms and Toolmark Examiners is the second one. ASCLAD is the third one. IAI, the um, uh, International Association for Identification is the fourth one. NAME is the fifth one. That's medical examiners. SOFT. Yeah, SOFT is the Society of Forensic Toxicology. That's six. That's six. That's six. six. You got to six. I've been counting for you. Good, thank you. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But they represent collectively more than 20,000 members of those six organizations and while there's some duplication some people belong to more than one organization the fact that they have a total membership of twenty thousand means we have a voice in our governing board with those six organizations represented at every meeting that we have a discussion on so they're they're giving influence and helping us to discover what the impact of these standards are when we have a standard that is raised to the registry and one of the benefits that we have in the resource committees is they have the assignment of going to ASCLAD because we have six representatives from ASCLAD on the quality infrastructure. And we did that because they're saying, well, you're passing all these standards. Do you have any idea what slides downhill for us to have to enact and empower our laboratories to utilize these standards? There may be instruments, there may be training, there may be personnel that have to be employed don't just dump a standard on us without giving us enough advance notice. And we said, you know what, why don't you simply send six of your members to be on our quality infrastructure and you'll hear about these long before they ever reach the street. Mm-hmm. So the partnership we have with ASCLAD has worked out very well. And as you can see at every meeting, the support that we get from ASCLAD is phenomenal, but it's a partnership. Anyway, that's, that's a long answer to the question of why we're interested in having forensic science organizations participate. But one of the things they can do, is that the organizations themselves have governing boards and if they issue a policy statement that says this professional forensic science organization endorses the acceptance of OSAC standards in your SOPs, that was the one question that had far and away the most positive outcome of our polling that we have just done. And while it, the polling is preliminary, it wasn't even close. There was a huge, Majority that said if you get professional forensic science organizations to make that recommendations as a policy statement That would go a long way to helping 400 government crime laboratories incorporate OSAC registry standards Okay, Uh, the fourth one was the legal community when you go to court I don't know the last time the people who are listening to this podcast who go to testify in court were asked the question Oh, by the way, are you licensed to do what you do? Are you certified? Is your laboratory accredited? Not many people are asked those questions. And what we would like to do is to educate the court systems so that prosecutors are asking on direct examination and defense attorneys are asking on cross-examination, routinely asking the question, so are you familiar with this OSAC standard? And did you incorporate and use that standard in conducting your analysis in this case? Sure. The first time that question is asked of a witness on the stand, and they have to answer no. It may be the last time they want to be on the witness stand answering no to that question. Well, in order for it to become an implementation factor, it has to actually be embraced by the criminal justice community, and they have to begin to ask those questions, oh, by the way, we know about the OSAC registry and what did you do in this case? So we see that as a very valuable tool. And it's up to the legal community to get judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys educated so that they can begin to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. The fifth one is certification bodies. The sixth one, accreditation bodies. We need to get their participation to partner in saying, by the way, we're going to create a standard norm that when we audit your laboratory or we make an examination of your own qualifications for the last year since you were last certified, We would like to know whether or not your laboratory or you as an individual have incorporated the use of OSAC standards. Uh, The seventh one is funding bodies and this is the carrot and the stick. Sure. The carrot is, we will give you extra points in the evaluation of your application for research or your application for equipment or your application for education if you can indicate to us whether your laboratory has adopted and implemented OSAC standards. If the answer is yes, you get extra points, that's the carrot. The stick is saying, if you haven't implemented these standards, don't bother applying. Right. So as a former NIJ director yourself, you know when you can use the carrot and when you can use the stick. And depending on what the circumstances is, we would offer both tools to funding bodies. And hopefully there will come a time when that becomes practice rather than the exception.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that the funding bodies, one of the things that's a consideration there is, is like you can't withhold funds unless you have a rigorous way of identifying what the reason is, right? And that's linked to the funding in question. So if you're going to give somebody DNA funding or funding for other disciplines, the issue is, well, you want the money to be well spent. And so linking that to a more formalized standards process that's recognized nationally by the associations and has all these other elements to it is something that allows the funding agency to act in a way that they wouldn't be able to today. That's really a great point.
2: I only have two more. One is ISO. So the International Standards Organizations, ISO 17025 and 17020, to mention two, are standards which incorporate uh, a lot of the same practices that have an impact directly on crime laboratory performance. And if we can get recognition as supplemental standards in accrediting bodies that address the standards that are on the OSAC registry, then that's a mechanism that we also think is going to be very impactful. And finally, education programs. And that's a broad range. So part of the implementation is just simply to say, if people don't know about the OSAC registry, then we can't expect them to implement it. So when you consider who gets educated, it's literally every stakeholder group. So we're going to have to have education for judges, for prosecutors, for defense attorneys, for accrediting bodies, for certification bodies, for professional organizations, and practitioners at large. So there's You know, to to
3: add on to the uh, education programs, I'll say John covered state commissions. That's another one. Uh, on the education programs, the thought being that if you take the FEPAC accredited uh, education providers that are giving forensic science degrees and if OSAC standards become more ubiquitous and we have the state and local labs using them, well if we can bake those down into the professional education that they're getting in their master's degrees and bachelor's degrees down in the academic level that if you come out to do glass analysis this will be the, doc- the standard that you would be following if they become exposed to those in school and trained on them in school, that's a nice value proposition for the lab directors hiring them knowing that when they come out, they are already have some familiarity with the processes and procedures that are being employed in the lab. So um, integrating the standards down at the academic level.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that, that that goes to the heart of this because it's really gonna have to be bought in by each individual forensic scientist. You know, when a forensic scientist is an expert witness on, at a trial, uh, you know, the first thing that it is like, are you an expert? I think a crucial thing that they should be able to say is, yeah, I use standards that are nationally recognized and rigorous. And the OSAC process is going to give them an an advantage in that regard with respect to the credibility and reliability that they have when they go into court.
3: Sort of the 30,000-foot view, folks are asking, you know, why again do we need need all this? Um, The crime labs in this country have made a very good use of the voluntary um, adoption of ISO 17020 or 17025. In in 2.5, there are not a lot of discipline-specific standards. So our ultimate goal is to produce very discipline-specific documents that are very granular, that are in the weeds on how you do a method or how you define someone as being qualified examiner for whatever discipline, so it's very granular. And then ultimately, hanging all those underneath the ISO umbrella. So we're really just trying to take what the accrediting bodies have of the ISO standard, their supplementals, And then hanging all these standards underneath that nice umbrella that gets very granular and very specific. Sure. And so that's
2: one of the areas that we keep promoting that really would help with standardization. I'd like to build on what JP just said with regard to the value, the gold star that you mentioned earlier, John, about standards that are elevated to the OSAC registry. One of the benefits of standards that are on the OSAC registry is that OSAC is an independent organization. We don't own any of the copyrights and we're not a regulatory body. The SDOs pass and own a lot of standards and in many cases they're coming from organizations which are composed largely of representatives, practitioners from the disciplines that those SDOs are organized from or who have memberships in them. But OSAC is checking those standards to make sure that they're technically sound and that they were properly built on consensus-based development. And in awarding that gold star, it constitutes an endorsement that we think has use in the criminal justice system that will pass muster with the seal of approval So that when that standard is an OSAC standard, it's more than just an SDO standard. It's a standard which has not only been developed by the practitioners themselves, but one which has been examined by a lot of critical individuals who have tested it statistically, calibration, scientific underpinning, and consensus-based development. And if it passes that high bar and is awarded status on the OSAC registry, that it will be accepted in court one of the things that Judge Plord, who's the chair of the Legal Resource Committee, said to us, give judges a list of OSAC approved standards and I guarantee you that those judges are simply going to be able to accept the testimony of witnesses who are saying we operated in our laboratory according to that standard. Judges are waiting for that kind of information. And if that's true, then we are providing a service which, before the NIS report, simply didn't exist in the criminal justice system in this country.
3: Really, what are, what are we sort of selling here? And, and to break it down into real layman's terms, all of this work is meant to show that the methods that are being employed in the laboratories are reliable. And if you're using reliable sound methods, then you can have confidence in the results that are produced by the lab. So going into court, there's less arguing about the underlying science about the method used and there's more discussion about how it might have just been employed in that specific case or if there were any deviations from the method and what the reason was for. Sure. And so it's really selling reliability and confidence which helps the criminal justice
1: system become more efficient. I would think. As a scientist, a certain discomfort with the Daubert and Fry processes because I feel like the scientific community needs to own what it means to do science in the forensic practice, right? And I see the OSAC standards process as a way of, it really is, the standards process is tech transfer. It's like, here's the science and here's how you put it into practice. And, and it's a very rigorous way for the scientific community to say, all right, we're putting our dollar down and this is what we say is scientific and makes it easy for the judges then to operate in that way. That's what, they, they definitely are looking for that. Before we wrap up, where is the future for OSAC at this point? We don't have any end
2: date for OSAC. It's an ongoing concern, and I think that it's fair to say that as long as it continues to be a value proposition that is embraced and supported by the forensic science community, and there is adequate funding to continue to pay for the participation of over 500 members to come to in-person meetings every nine months. And they also meet virtually at least monthly, and in some cases more than monthly, with uh, teleconferencing. We don't see any end to this organization. So one of the things that we have said from the very beginning is that NIST has in its mission the ability to start OSAC and to help prepare it for eventual transition to an independent organization that is not under NIST's control. And whether it took five years to happen, we're approaching the five-year mark next year, or 10 years, whatever time it takes, that transition won't occur until we have a business model that's going to be financially stable and has scientific integrity. And only then is NIST going to make the transition. But there has to be a receiving organization. And currently, we don't have a receiving organization. So we're in the process of developing something which is uh, affectionately called OSAC 2.0. And we asked uh, through uh, the Federal Register to have public comments on helping us build that model. And NIST has a group within the organization and with the assistance of other agencies who are reviewing this for us. We're still building that model. And when the model has been built, we will publish it. expect another round of public feedback. So NIST isn't going to own this forever, but OSAC, we're hoping, will be a value proposition that will live as long as it provides value to forensic science and the criminal justice system.
3: You know, at the more granular level, as his deputy, I'm in charge of all the nuts and bolts and granular, and we follow his vision. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that we operate off the congressional funding cycle, just like the FTCOE and and NIJ and other places like that, and that we do have funding. We are going to be moving about 500 people to meetings in November and December of 18. And we do have enough funding to have another large gathering in uh, July of 2019. So we have the money to have another two sets of large meetings. And so
1: if we get more funding, we just keep doing it. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast, uh, Mark and JP. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, John. And thank you uh, for those of you listening, for listening to Just Science today, and for uh, your continued participation in this uh, experiment and improving the forensic science community. Please tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science and the other deliverables that Forensic Technology Center of Excellence provides to the forensic science community. And thank you for listening today.
0: In our next episode, Just Science interviews Sarah Chu from the Innocence Project about their efforts to improve the criminal justice system. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.